This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and you're listening to The Sportacast. You had a little, like, Mona Lisa grin on your face. I thought you were going to come with something creative. Were you thinking about it? The Phil Mickelson of the sports business podcast world. Um, Certainly exciting. We're not not uh, the Phil Mickelson. That would mean we've been around for 50 years. (laughs) Which is why I held off because nothing came to me in the moment that was exciting and smart. (laughs) You, You tried. You tried. That's all right. But the big news earlier in the week, Sunday night as... The sun fell on the coast of, the, of South Carolina. <laughs> um, Phil, victorious once again. Did you see it coming? I mean, let me give you some stats here, Eben. I know you're normally stats, but I'll do it for, for the heck of it. Uh, when was the last time he won? Only twice on the PGA Tour in the last eight years. He hadn't finished in the top 20 in his previous 17 events, and Phil takes the PGA Championship. Yeah, so I didn't see it coming <laughs> to answer to answer your question. I don't think anybody who follows golf uh, really really saw this coming, but it's great. It's obviously great for him. I think it's great for the sport. Uh, I am not a golf fan. I don't think there is a single storyline that could have got me turning that tournament on on Sunday, personally, except for the one that played out. And, and I did. I watched four or five holes uh, at the start of the back nine when he really started to pull away. And I felt like I could go to dinner uh, without ruining the, the end of the, of the tournament. Um, but yeah, this is, we saw this, it felt kind of deja vu-y what happened with Tiger Woods at the Masters in 2019, I believe. When you know he was in contention, people were like, "Oh, wouldn't it be amazing if this happened?" And then as Sunday kept going, it was this actually may happen, and and the superlatives start rolling out. I think this is the best case scenario for the PGA Tour. Uh, we've talked a lot, Scott, about the younger stars. Someone needs to take up the mantle uh, for the generation after the Woods and Mickelsons. But every once in a while, if you get one of these guys to win a major tournament, uh, it's going to do monster numbers, monster ratings, and get a lot of positive press. Yeah, well, similarly, I shut off the TV with the Edmonton Oilers leading the Winnipeg Jets four to one. Had that turn out major, but good. Thank, but thank you for Twitter, by the way, because I did see all of a sudden it was four four. So I knew I had time before overtime. You know, my my son yeah. went to bed, and then I scurried downstairs and watched uh, Connor McDavid uh, lament yet another loss. Um, you didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming, but somebody saw it coming. Evan, Wednesday night, some better. On the DraftKings DraftKings account, plunked down a thousand bucks on Phil to win, and depending on where you were, but it was like two hundred and fifty, three hundred to one. 
That person's got about 300 grand in their account now. That's that's a good bet. Somebody saw it coming. Remind me to bet Retief Goosens for whatever the next uh, whatever the next major is. Um, yeah, it's, it's again, it's, it's kind of similar to the conversations we've had around Tiger. People who who work on the sports book side for golf will tell you that the the, the legacy popular guys like Tiger and Phil get bet way more than than they should. And for years during Tiger's bad slump, and I'm sure it's been the same during Phil Mickelson's struggles over those last eight years you were mentioning, uh, sports books made a killing off these guys because people saw a big number next to, to, to Phil Mickelson's name and they say, oh, Phil's a good golfer. Like, that seems like value. And they keep hitting it. There's also a lot of people that are fans of Phil's. Uh, so uh, sports books took a, took a beating this weekend in the same way they did when Tiger won the Masters a few years ago. But does it offset the killing that they've made every single Sunday that Phil Mickelson has played and missed the cut uh, in, in the past few years? I'm not sure. But yeah, no question that if you... We're holding a Phil Mickelson ticket, and a lot of people were. Uh, they came out ahead on that. Scott, sometimes when, we, when we're researching for, for the pod, I'm writing down numbers. I see things that are not really germane to the subject, but I just want to point out anyway. In the story that we published, Kurt Badenhausen put together kind of the money behind the win. Uh, this is the, the, the biggest purse for a PGA event of, of, of Phil's life, $2.16 million. Uh, and then in parentheses, he made $9 million for the match against Tiger Woods, that first uh, Thanksgiving event uh, with Turner. That will never, that number will never not shock me that Phil Mickelson can win, you know, the most recent major, biggest prize of his career, $2.16 million. Uh, but, but, but he did once make three times that, more than three times that, more than four, four times that uh, in a single golf event that was not PGA Tour related. Well, yeah, well, but that leads me to why don't these guys really just focus on the easier lifestyle? Exactly. Once a year, twice a year. Rope in Peyton Manning, rope in Charles Barkley, as they've done. Marquee names that draw eyeballs, whether you do it as a pay-per-view or sponsor or advertiser, your marquee folks can get big dollars. Can you imagine... I mean, people are going to want to see Tiger play again if he ever plays again after you know the car crash and the injury. But what if he didn't do it in a PGA Tour event? What if we came back, Tiger and Phil versus you know DeChambeau and whoever? People would plunk down big money to see that. I'd be, I don't think I'd pay, but I think plenty of people would be interested. And all four of them, even if they're equal, sliding scale, whatever, all four of them would probably make way more money on that than they would playing even in a championship. So, yeah, you wonder where are we going with this distribution of all streaming services, everybody searching for content. It it was sort of the the appeal of the Golf Super League pitch. You can work far less and you can make far more. I mean, Greg Norman did this so many years ago and the PGA Tour threatened to pull the tour cards and they did it again. When the talk of a, of, a, of, a, of a Super League of golf came up, they threatened to, to pull the cards. But I'd be nervous if I was the league if athletes, particularly the stars, realize, I don't need you. I mean, if they're really chasing trophies and, and that, but to get to that superstar status, they've already won a, a good amount. But if it really is the motivation is, I want to make as much as I can, as fast as I can, going on the tour, playing the majors, Seems like it really isn't the way to go anymore. It's fancy yourself part of one of these big pay-per-view events. 
Yeah, and if you're a broadcaster, how do you ensure that Phil is always in contention on Sunday? If Phil is one of three people in the event and uh, it's a two-day thing, uh, there, there's ways to to kind of create some of this excitement outside of the PGA uh, system. And, and one other item I'll bring up from, from Kurt's story, Phil's getting pretty close to hitting that billion-dollar mark of, uh, of career earnings. Phil, uh, Kurt estimates he's about $800 million off the course from, from numerous endorsements. And then uh, with this win here, just about a hundred million on the course, a little under a hundred million. So, so 900 million right now for Phil, uh, he's making about 40 million off the course. It sounds like every year in endorsements, it, it seems like that billion dollar number is going to get hit at some point soon. And I imagine Scott, not many athletes can, 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 can hit that target, can say they've hit that target. Yeah. You need two things. You need longevity, of course. And you, and you need people to really want to stick with you for some reason. <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, we can name some of them like Callaway, Mizzen and Maine, KPMG, Rolex, and then sort of your equity plays where Phil Al has a, a coffee line. Hmm. So that that's beyond just an endorsement where, thank you, I'll take your cash. You know, Now you're talking about an equity play where if it succeeds, yeah, I, I'd be surprised, obviously, if he does not reach that billion-dollar mark. And it's, there's Phil and Tiger you know, chasing each other again. It's always those two top guys. Um, it would be interesting to see how far Phil can take it. Let's move on, Scott. Another big piece of news over the weekend, uh, something kind of behind the scenes in sports business. Uh, but on Sunday, the United uh, U.S. Soccer uh, and MLS announced that they were separating their commercial rights agreement. We can get into the weeds on exactly what this means, but there's a company called Soccer United Marketing. It manages the commercial interests for U.S. soccer in addition to CONCACAF and the Mexican national team here in the U.S. They've had this relationship for 20 years. It's been fairly controversial over the years. They are now going to decouple it once this agreement ends at the end of 2022. U.S. soccer will go its own way, will manage its own rights internally, and MLS and S Soccer United Marketing will go its own separate way, kind of keep the other assets that they have. Uh, I think a lot of soccer fans maybe wouldn't understand that this is a huge deal off the bat, but why don't you explain kind of how big and what this means for soccer in America moving forward after 2022? Yeah, well, I think before you look forward, it's, it's good to look back and you can learn some things. Like this all came about in about 2004 after no English language broadcasters, and this doesn't even make sense today, but no English language broadcasters bid for the 2006 and 2010 World Cups. Like that would not happen today. Obviously, the the English language broadcasters won in on that. Um, the they, origin they, story they, is is fascinating. They, I think it's it's a little bit earlier than that. It's 2001, um, and they formed this group because no one was bidding, as you said, on the World Cup. They bought the rights to the 2022 World Cup. They were going to produce it. Then they cut the deal with ABC, ESPN. There was no broadcaster, as you're saying, that, that wanted to broadcast that 2022, 2002 World Cup. Soccer United Marketing, MLS owners essentially put together $70 million to buy those rights so that they could do it themselves. And that became the origin story for this company. Yeah, but you mentioned uh, some of the entities that some, as Soccer United Marketing is known, that, that they oversee. And like the, the the Mexican national team and the tours that they come on the U.S., those are very profitable games. That those are mm. lucrative events. And you know, if you don't understand the relationship, like some is in essence sort of the for-profit marketing arm of MLS. In you know, Don Garber is the CEO of some, and critics would point to it and say, well, there's an inherent conflict of interest here because the United States Soccer Federation is in business with Soccer United Marketing. However, which is you know obviously a part of MLS at a time when it oversees that league as well, 
So we've seen this a number of times in the last NBA uh, labor negotiation. What did the players do for the first time since I can remember? They took the marketing rights of the players in-house. They used to put, to get a, a big-time fee and split it among all the players. They thought they could do better bringing those marketing rights in-house. As these players themselves, as the teams as a collective, as the content becomes more valuable, you're seeing these entities say, we can do this better ourselves. And no, right now, does the United States Soccer Federation have the infrastructure? Does it have the, 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 uh, the, the personnel that it'll require to go out and sell these rights? No, but they, they, they have a little time. This doesn't expire till the end of 2022. So you can bet they'll hire a whole bunch of folks and they will have that infrastructure in place. I would advise they call Think 450, the marketing arm of the NBPA, and say, wait a minute, how did you guys go about it? And you know, what have you seen out there taking marketing rights in-house? In um, some have said, by the way, like there's a correlation between um, the SUM and U.S. soccer. The CEO, Will Wilson, the CMO, David Wright, you know, those are executives right now at U.S. soccer. They used to be at Soccer United Marketing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, folks in and around the game can say, if I'll use a literary term, there was some foreshadowing here as to where this was going since the marketing folks and the, and all the bosses at USSF were former Sock United marketing people. Yeah, I get the sense that this is not a huge surprise to Major League Soccer and, and the owners who are the kind of the equity share owners in 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 Soccer United marketing. Uh, what this also means, Scott, is that the next round of TV rights that MLS is about to go negotiate and U.S. Very soccer soon, yeah. is about to go yeah. negotiate are going to happen separately. The, the, the $720 million eight-year deal that is Major League Soccer's TV rights also includes U.S. soccer, so the men's national team and the women's national team. Uh, that will, again, be decoupled. So, so MLS is going to hit the market, is already talking early stages with partners. We're going to see exactly what Major League Soccer rights are worth. The, the, the previous deals, as I said, bundled all these together. Don Garber has said in the past, there's nothing in the contract that says of that $90 million a year, 60 of it is for Major League Soccer and 30 of it is for U.S. Soccer. There's nothing that's really breaks that out. So, you know, it's kind of always been a mystery how much of that contract is MLS value, how much of that contract is U.S. Soccer value. We're now going to see exactly how valuable both these products are on their own because they're going to start selling them separately. Yeah, I have seen many prognosticators look at an indicator like how much was paid for the NFL rights, that all the money was being spent elsewhere or will be saved up for a new round of whatever, and that uh, leagues such as MLS would probably get dinged because of it. I'm going to go the other way, Evan. I I think there's great value in the scale, in in the marketplace, in the demographics of the country, uh, a possible tie-in with Liga MX at some point. Um, I think the proliferation of the streaming services and that battle for content and live and yes, betting and data. Uh, I, I just think that, that, that the amount, the scale of what MLS can give either one partner or multiple partners, linear as well as streaming, is just too great. Uh, I, I think ML owners will, MLS owners will in the end 
wind up with a smile on their faces. And and looming in the background of all this is the World Cup in 2026, which will yeah. be back in, in North America for the first time in, in 30 years. Uh, everybody around the sport in the U.S., has circled that date on their calendar from from the moment it was announced. Uh, the expectation is that if soccer, if 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 the U.S. Hope hosting the 1994 Men's World Cup kind of gave birth to MLS and and kind of was the the seed that planted for for soccer in the U.S. That this 2026 event, which will largely be held in the U.S., uh, will be kind of the next iteration of that explosion, and that's gonna that's a positive, obviously, for U.S. soccer. It's also positive. Uh, for MLS as well. Anyone who has kind of commercial interest in soccer in America, and that includes both those both those entities, the expectation is that 2026 will be a big jumping off point for them. Now, we should note that I'm I'm the guy of a certain age who was at Giant Stadium Lodos many years ago mm. to watch Giorgio Quinalia and Bogey and Escandarian and Seninho. So, you know, I, I am a soccer fan. It seemed to me like the Cosmos played the Tampa Bay Rowdies every game. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure about that. But just when I think back, it just seems like, wait, are we are there more than two teams in this league? Because why are the Cosmos playing Tampa Bay again? But anyway, the Cosmos were pretty darn good and it was entertaining and they had 70 plus thousand and it was Jim Carvelis and Seamus Mallon, I believe on either WOR, WPIX. I can't remember which one, but it was an event and I'm not going to do the clap. You know, you are watching Cosmos soccer. You're too young for that, but <laughs> I, it, yeah, it, a lot of this is going over. I know Pele. <laughs> all right. On the Somebody go on the Twitter Sportacast <laughs> or holler at me and Evan. If you're of a certain age and you remember Carvelis and Malin and, and the Cod, you don't really don't know the clap. Do I need to do I it? I don't know the clap. No. Cosmos. You, you don't remember that. I, I mean, that, I, that clap, right. I, I recognize as a go, sports thing. But Go look it up, young man. I'll transition <laughs> to the next one. I'm feeling really old. All right. Let's end, Scott, uh, on what feels like a topic that is changing every week. Uh, an announcement early this week, the National Inters- Interscholastic Basketball Conference, six of the biggest high school basketball programs in the country. That includes Oak Hill Academy, uh, where Carmelo Anthony went, IMG Academy down in Florida, Four others uh, are announcing a new league. Uh, it's going to be eight teams when they announce all of them. Ten-game season, postseason. They're essentially going to fly around the country and play each other as a way of getting more exposure for the elite high school basketball talent around the country. Uh, if you mix this, Scott, with the Overtime Elite League, which we've written about, the Professional Collegiate League, which is coming in, the G League and the changes they've done with their high school team, the, the, the Ignite, um, changes that are coming at the NCAA as well. Uh, the the NABL down in Australia and New Zealand also changing the way that elite young basketball players can be compensated before they reach the NBA. It just seems like, particularly in the sport of basketball, the experience of being an elite high school player and what that means in your transition towards being a professional player is being completely upended right now. It used to be that you would go to the marquee blue chip programs in college because you were on ESPN, CBS, you got a lot of play. You don't want to wait anymore. Now you want to be on those entities when you're in high school and you talk about innovation and things that have grown out of pandemic. Well, this is one of the things that grew out of pandemic. They had no one to play. And, and, and I can, I can take this on a much smaller scale, Eben, in that, and here we go. My, you know, my, uh, my focus group of one, you know, my son plays pretty high level hockey. And when you eliminated some places that we were allowed to go and play and couldn't cross lines, it was really hard for us to find games against teams 
of equal caliber. So, you know, we, we did some things to make that happen. Let's just say that. All right. So where we played some of the best teams. Okay. We kept it busy that way. Well, that's what these teams did. And, you know, in January, they got together. They put some of the best teams together in, in, in Washington and said, let's play because they can't just play anybody. They can't play the local schools. They'll destroy them by 75. So what they learned, what they took out of that experience is, wow, we sold sponsorship. We were on the ESPN networks. There is real power in the collection of marquee brands. And that can be the brands of the athletes themselves, also the institutions. If you're a basketball fan, you know Oak Hill Academy. You, you know it's Rod Strickland and Kevin Durant. Yeah. Yes, the yes. yellow and you, red. Yeah. yeah, for years, these top names have come from these institutions, so you know all about it. I can tell you that Oak Hill was a powerhouse. You know, Even if you don't go down the list, you know they're in the group. And now you got Cade Cunningham as a Montverde guy. Like he's the projected number one pick. You've got these stars and marquee programs. What, what, what's the stat here? Six, the six current teams that are part of this already, and it's going to grow to eight. They have won the past eight national titles, and wow. Montverde claimed five of them. So you're dealing with blue chip here. And this is about the power of the collective. They all said, what can we do together? Sponsors going to want to jump on board broadcasters, and that's a, that can be, again, linear, streaming, whatever. Broadcasters are going to want to jump on board, and we can do this. So here they are. Now they're formalizing what was an experiment based out of necessity. And this is, to be clear, this is an opportunity for high school students who still want to play in the NCAA. Yeah. If you go to the Overtime Elite League and get paid as a high schooler, you are essentially giving up your eligibility to play in the NCAA, and that's totally fine for a lot of players and a lot of elite players seem to be willing to make that jump. This is an option for a high school player who says, look, I want as much exposure as possible when I'm in high school. I don't want to shut the door quite yet on being able to go to Kentucky or go to Duke and play college basketball for a year or two years or three years before jumping to the NBA. So we're starting to see kind of a bunch of different potential paths here for elite 15, 16 year old basketball players where they can get paid in high school if they want to. They can choose not to get paid in high school, but they can join an elite conference where they're going to get a lot of exposure. From there, they can get paid while in college by joining the PCL. They can get paid overseas by going to New Zealand. They can choose to go the traditional college route. Um, again, they're going to be able to market themselves through NIL at some oh, point. Soon, I was going to say, don't ideally. leave out NIL. Soon yeah, you can in, go to, in, go in to college states, and get paid. Yeah. It seems. Um, there's also the, the, the transfer rules, which have changed in college basketball, which is you know, we don't have to get into that. It's a deep topic, but it's probably fundamentally changing college basketball as well in a way of giving athletes a lot more rights and a lot more say in what their career trajectory does. Uh, so there is, again, just seems to be a lot of different, a lot of more options than there was even three or four years ago if you're a 16 or 17-year-old elite high school basketball player in America. All right, I'm going to quote Rashid Ghazi of Paragon Sports Group, Paragon Marketing Group, excuse me, he's the commissioner of the NIBC, the quote was, during the course of the season, the schools realized the power of building their brands together. I'm, I'm guessing they had an inkling, but they said, you know, if we all present a united front here and, and we have our own little thing, surely somebody's going to find that interesting. And, and then I will go back to the old, old, old John Skipper quote, get me the eyeballs, I'll figure out a way to monetize. That's what they're doing. 
I think that's good for us, Scott. Next, uh, later in the week, we're going to be joined by a guest, Akshay Khanna over at StubHub, run StubHub's North American business. Uh, we've talked a lot, Scott, on the pad- podcast the last few weeks about return to uh, packed stadiums. Few people see that marketplace better than the folks in the ticketing world. Really excited to talk to Akshay. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media director, Cora Veltman, likes me to tell you, as you all know, that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the centerpiece, the hub, the focal point of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network.